The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I'm going ashore with our host, Princess Pertis. Hercules will be my lieutenant. Follow his orders as you would mine. Apparently I'm in your debt, young prince. It is our custom to repay our debts in kind, though no gift can equal a firstborn child. Sir, you do have in your domain a treasure that would be as dear to me. What treasure is as dear as a son? The Golden Fleece. Sir, we come in peace. No, you came to rob me, and you shall pay. Father, remember that you are in his debt. To slay him now would only anger the gods. Let the gods decide his fate. Set him a task that no unfavored mortal could complete. Yes, my daughter. He shall face the Menaean bull. He will harness the Menaean bull. Plow the field of Ares and sow it with dragon teeth. If you live, I shall know the gods favor you, and you will have the Golden Fleece. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 19, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, heroes are made, not born. And it is the culture reflected in the stories of mankind that often are the defining point of that culture. And culture is at the heart of our discussion today, as the steady attacks against Western culture become increasingly irrational to the point of unbelievability. (laughs) The attack comes mainly in the form of what has been called political correctness, and which is the focus of our discussion today. Now, if you're a regular visitor to Just Right's blog site, Facebook page, or if you're an email subscriber to Just Right, then you probably have already noticed that we've been releasing numerous video and audio presentations online in addition to our weekly broadcasts of Just Right. One of those releases was the one featuring Professor Rick Mehta, who, like Jordan Peterson, Lindsay Shepard, and a growing list of others, has found himself on the wrong side of the political correctness fence. We'll be hearing more about Rick a bit later on, but he and the others mentioned are far from being alone, as the victims keep piling up, while a bewildered West looks on with shock and astonishment. Is all this really happening? Yes, it is, and we'll be taking a closer look at the bigger picture right after I take a moment to remind you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. 
You know, we live in extraordinarily dangerous times. For never before has the West been in such peril. Yet most people are completely unaware, if not complicit or supportive, of just what's happening around us and the dire consequences that will follow, whatever shape they may take. And this is all being driven by the left, and at its root, the left represents a death cult, one that is anti-life and anti-reality to the point of irrationality on a scale hardly imaginable except in tyrannical dictatorships. Yet when you look at the symptoms, one at a time, they seem sometimes just mildly irritating or frustrating or ridiculous or outright not to be taken serious because it's too unreal to believe anyone could possibly be acting or thinking like that. I've been going through a lot of that myself. Political correctness consists of a language that is anti-conceptual, and anti-concepts are a great means to make it impossible to have any discussion or debate with anyone. Words become meaningless, and so any conversation using them is also pointless, and the only way to resolve disagreements is in the end by the use of force. Political correctness, in the end, always means forced correctness, which, of course, is entirely incorrect. Now, one of those anti-concepts of political correctness is the one called cultural appropriation, which, if you think about it, is metaphysically impossible, but to those using the term is a way of creating innocent victims, like the theater folks in this following account. If you've heard about this, this is going worldwide. Direct blow to artistic freedom, reads the headline in the National Post of July 7th. Montreal award-winning director Robert LePage has broken his silence over a decision by the Montreal International Jazz Festival to shut down his controversial production Slav after just three performances saying the move was a direct blow to artistic freedom. The production, which features songs composed by slave cultures, including black slaves in the United States, was criticized for having a mostly white cast and a white director. Protesters accused the show of appropriation of black culture. The Jazz Fest announced the cancellation of all further performances of Slav because of the protests. In a release posted on his theater company's Facebook page, LePage wrote that he didn't want to enter into the debate over cultural appropriation, quote, for it is an extremely complicated problem and I don't pretend to know how to solve it, end quote. LePage argued that theater has been based on a very simple principle, that of playing someone else, pretending to be someone else stepping into the shoes of another person to try and understand them and in the process perhaps understand ourselves better. This ancient ritual requires that we borrow for the duration of a performance someone else's look, accent, and at times even gender. But when we are no longer allowed to step into someone else's shoes, when it is forbidden to identify with someone else, theater is denied its very nature. It is prevented from performing its primary function and thus is rendered meaningless. Over the course of my career, I have devoted entire shows denouncing injustices done throughout history to specific cultural groups without actors from said groups. These shows have been performed all over the world in front of very diverse audiences without anyone accusing me of cultural appropriation, let alone of racism. Quite the contrary, end quote, says LePage. It's almost too little too late and, and too self-concerned. Isn't there really a more fundamental issue here than just, quote, artistic freedom? 
know, everybody waits till till the trouble comes knocking at their front door before they do something about it because they've seen this happening all around them to other people. And you know, the protesters, if they actually represented a threat to the performance of the play, I think they should have been arrested and locked up because otherwise this story is about a pure act of injustice. The perpetrators are either the Jazz Fest organizers or the protesters are both. How anyone would ever take the idea of cultural appropriation seriously is a matter for psychiatrists and psychologists to work out. You know, those who protest about cultural appropriation are in and of themselves racist, plain and simple. And moreover, there is no black culture any more than there is a white culture. Cultures don't come in the color of skin, they come in the color of ideas. And if the ideas in terms of color are to be measured against black and white, then the ideas behind the cultural appropriation come from the blackness of ignorance and evil. Some things are black and white, and that's a moral statement. Black being the darkness of ignorance and evil, while white is the light of reason, the only force that can eradicate the darkness of ignorance. This theme has been reflected by the traditional stories of mankind from the Greek and Roman mythologies to the Christian and Muslim stories that have defined and shaped the core of those respective cultures. But there are, of course, many more contemporary stories of our time, like the production of Slav, or like the production of TV classics now being challenged for the values they embody to which the left objects. For example, ran across this one just just two days ago. Sexual tension, reads the headline in London Free Press. Now 20 years on, why do today's feminists hate sex in the city? Written by Rowan Pelling. Quote, a significant section of the female population, especially those under 35, aren't celebrating the anniversary of sex in the city. For many of today's feminists, the show is too consumerist, too white, and too obsessed with pinning down a man to be worthy of eulogies. Many young female critics now dismiss Bradshaw, whom Naomi Wolf once praised as a pop culture philosopher, as annoying and a poor role model. There is also an entertaining meme called Woke Charlotte, which rewrites scenes from the show recasting prudish romantic Charlotte York as that very 21st century creation, an intersectional feminist, which is a feminist conscious of other types of prejudice such as racism. So when Carrie wears her ghetto gold jewelry for fun, Woke Charlotte responds, that statement is deeply classist and displays a complete lack of awareness of your privilege as a white woman. (laughs) Yes, there were downsides. The rampant consumerism was consistently the least appealing quality. It also became ever harder to ignore the fact the show was resolutely white, wealthy, and in terms of sexual orientation, orthodox. The decision to make all four women straight, when in real life one, Nixon, is gay, seems particularly perverse, and that originated from the London Daily Telegraph. You know, I knew the minute I read the headline, Why Do Feminists Hate Sex in the City, that it was because the women played heterosexual roles and were white. What else could it be? An intersectional feminist? There's another adjective for you, and it's another one that means not, (laughs) not feminist. Because this kind of feminism concerns itself with racism, and racism is not about feminism. It is about the left, as is feminism, but they're two different things. If you want to understand and eliminate racism and sexism, then you have to learn to understand the left and how to eliminate it, 
which is the direction in which our show will lead today. Because otherwise, more crap like this will just keep happening until it happens to you. <laughs> like this one. Monty Python attacked for being too white. Can you believe it? This is by Paul Bois, printed July 6, 2016, founded in the entertainment section. And, quote, The beloved Monty Python franchise has been attacked for being too white, prompting one of its top stars, Terry Gilliam, to say some outlandish stuff in defense. Recently, the BBC's head of comedy, Shane Allen, criticized the classic comedy troupe Monty Python for being too white, male, and middle class. If you're going to assemble a team now, it's not going to be six... Oxbridge white blokes, Alan said in June. It's going to be a diverse range of people who reflect the modern world. And I think we've heard the metropolitan educated experience, he continued. I think it's about how original a voice you have over what school you went to. Speaking at the Karlovy Vary Film Festival in the Czech Republic, Terry Gilliam pumped his troll factor to 11 when he lampooned the politically correct backlash by declaring himself a black lesbian. It made me cry, he said, the idea that no longer six white Oxbridge men can make a comedy show, said Gilliam. Now we need one of this, one of that. Everyone represented. This is BS. I no longer want to be a white male. I don't want to be blamed for everything wrong in the world. I tell the world now, I'm a black lesbian. My name is Loretta, and I'm a BLT, a black lesbian in transition. <laughs> Alan's statement made me so angry, all of us angry, he said. Comedy is not assembled. It's not like putting together a boy band where you put together one of this and one of that and everyone's represented. BBC's head of comedy puts Monty Python's lack of originality down to a surfeit of education and racist bias. Unfair. We were remarkably diverse for our time. We had three grammar school boys, one a poof, and Gilliam, though not actually black, was a yank. And no slave owners. <laughs> Head of comedy Shane Allen said the broadcaster no longer values the metropolitan educated experience and needs to be more diverse. Allen's comments came as he unveiled a series of new programs, including an all-women's sketch show, end quote. Funny how that's not considered to be an imbalance in casting. And then, of course, there are the notorious politically incorrect folk on our university campus who have earned the attention of the world, like Jordan Peterson and Lindsay Shepard. And, as I mentioned earlier, Professor Rick Mehta, who Robert Vaughn interviewed in our YouTube release this week. Professor Mehta of Acadia University recounted his concerns with feminism on campus, the decolonization issue, and the actions his university administrators have taken regarding his outspoken views. Rick also appeared shortly after our own interview on Idea City, hosted by Moses Neimer, and gave a presentation to the live audience there about what he himself has been seeing and experiencing on his own campus. Let's listen in, shall we? Hi, Rick. I read about you, haven't met you. So glad you could come. Maybe you can pick up this story and give us the maritime chapter. Yeah, thank you. 
Um, so I'll be uh, approaching this from a slightly different angle, becoming uh, from what it's like from the uh, professor's point of view and trying to put the role of the university in society. So the general way I've had this structured is that I want to explain how a lack of viewpoint diversity in our universities is actually undermining free speech. And at the end, I'll uh, propose some solutions that can be discussed. So I guess the question that's on your mind is, what does he mean when he says that there's a lack of viewpoint diversity? If we look in the United States and we examine the ratio of professors who are either left-leaning or far-left, and compare that to the number of professors who are on the uh, right end of the political spectrum. Depending on the studies, the estimates can range from anywhere typically in the 6 to 1 ratio to 60 to 1. So there is this um, bias in terms of leaning towards the left end of the political spectrum. Uh, that's for the U.S., and I believe those same data are applicable in the Canadian context. Uh, so in terms of what I think makes Canada unique, though, from the U.S., though, is that our uh, universities are publicly funded for the most part. They're also, with most of the faculty who are tenured or on the tenure track, uh, tend to be unionized, which is very different from the U.S. So uh, there, there's many reasons why we should be concerned about the lack of viewpoint diversity at our institutions. When you have a group of people who think in a very similar way, that creates ideal conditions for extreme views now to take hold and then take over. Our universities now are committing themselves to the goal of social justice, and this runs counter uh, to their traditional role of being places where ideas can be freely exchanged. Why I'm very deeply concerned about this is that this is a major change in the function of our universities, and this is happening without the, uh, the knowledge of the general public or any consent or any kind of um, discussion. And I think what makes me also concerned, as this is happening at a time, as we've seen in the various sessions here, uh, where we're in this uh, age of accelerating change, as well as uh, a polarization of society, and this is precisely the time when we need our graduates to be informed and engaged citizens who can actually think critically. Uh, so we can ask ourselves then, uh, what does social justice entail? Uh, so I can summarize it as uh, four principles. So the first major one is that emotions take precedence over objectivity and being rational. So it's almost, it's basically to the point where being objective and rational is just discounted altogether. And so the rationale, that's, the reason that's given for that is that being objective and rational is a form of oppression. So some of the views that are espoused are ones like math is racist or farmers markets are a sign of white supremacy. Okay. Uh, then the other three principles that are coming out of our universities are based on principles that in mainstream society, I think the way we would use them uh, is very different from the way they're now being used in the university system. Uh, so the first one is that of equity. Uh, so now what's happening is that equity is being uh, defined as equality of outcomes as opposed to equality of opportunity. Uh, so to give you an example then, if we're going to have a discussion about the wage gaps, so we know there is a statistical disparity between the uh, earnings of men and the earnings of women. Uh, so the only explanation that's considered now in the university context is systemic discrimination. Uh, so then other explanations like number of hours worked that differ 
or career choices. So those are all uh, variables that play a role, but those just cannot be discussed anymore. And if you try to bring up an issue such as uh, biological sex differences, uh, that's treated as a form of blasphemy. Uh, so then, you know, uh, so then next then is the principle of diversity. Uh, so diversity is definitely, I think that's definitely one of the great things about Canada and how it's changed in the time that, um, you know, that, um, you know, when I was born in the 70s with the October crisis uh, compared to now. Uh, but it's the way that that principle is adopted in the university context, uh, which is about focusing on our differences and really accentuating them as opposed to the way I think we would use them, which is try to find our common humanity first and then use that as context and we can now settle our differences. Uh, then the third is the idea of inclusive and uh, inclusion. Uh, so the way it's now being used is that everyone must feel included. And so the idea is that if even one person uh, is offended, then discussion on issues is no longer acceptable. Uh, so you can imagine then there's going to be various implications then when we're changing the function, the way that our, you know, the way that ideas are actually now discussed in the university system. Uh, so in terms of what it's like from a student perspective then, is that students who might be disagreeing uh, with, you know, the far left kind of orthodoxy uh, would be afraid to express their views uh, because they'd be fearing retaliation in the classroom, possibly online, and that can come from their peers. Uh, other sources then might be their professors or from uh, administrators. Uh, from a professor's point of view, uh, there's different reasons then you might think, well, why aren't other professors speaking up? Why are there only a few, even though they're tenured? Uh, so I think that there's various reasons then why uh, professors would be afraid uh, for speaking up, and it can be any combination of the uh, list that I'll go through. Uh, so one is that you might have complaints from students uh, who'd be upset that professors are expressing views or presenting facts that aren't politically correct. Uh, second is that the professors then might be themselves ostracized uh, in their workplace or online, let's say through social media. Uh, a third place is that they could be charged then with harassment or discrimination because the way the university policies are uh, designed, they focus exclusively on outcomes and intent is not even, uh, is considered a non-issue. Right? Uh, so in terms of that is that when uh, uh, professors then, uh, under those kind of circumstances, can be disciplined, reprimanded, uh, there's even the issue of uh, possible dismissal. Uh, so you might wonder then if that's happening, why might, not they, might, why, why might they not speak out? Uh, so uh, one possible reason for that is that when these cases happen, they eventually then go to arbitration. And the rules of arbitration are different from that from the regular court system. And so it, uh, it can be a long, drawn-out process that can take years. And as well, it's quite expensive because it involves the union having to pay uh, legal fees. And so the, uh, what the union then tells the, uh, oftentimes now tells the professors, the faculty members uh, who are expressing their views, is actually not to post on social media, don't talk about this, keep this confidential. Uh, the reason is that if you do do that, uh, then that could work against you in the case of an arbitration. Uh, so that's the rationale that is uh, provided then in terms of uh, telling professors not to speak out. And so we might not know for, then for years what's going to happen until you know the outcome of the arbitration hearing. And so um, 
I think one could argue that there's different ways that a union could advocate for their members, so that's one possible route. Uh, but another possible route could be maybe saying, okay, we'll have a media committee that'll get set up. Uh, if we see that the situation is really just uh, preposterous or seems to be clearly frivolous, uh, we can maybe make the case for you, make some uh, bad publicity, and then hopefully that would get, let's say, the campus community to mobilize or the um, uh, the general public to mobilize, and that could be even maybe prevent a dismissal and you know, uh, save costs. But to my knowledge, that's not an approach that has been adopted. Uh, so I guess given that context, I think that would explain why professors and students might be afraid to speak. Uh, but uh, despite all this, I think there is reason for hope and to be optimistic. Uh, so we are going to be having a federal uh, election in 2019. And so I will put some ideas out here, just the general ideas that I'm hoping that people uh, will discuss these ideas, the relative merits, and come to some kind of a senses that we can have as a society. So the general approach that I'm thinking is that with the election coming around the corner, is that we do make this into an issue uh, that is discussed at the election so that our actual university system becomes one that is one of intense public debate. Uh, so there are various solutions, and I don't want to be heavy-handed, so the ones that I've tried to do come up with are ones that would give uh, flexibility and wouldn't be uh, state, uh, you know, the state imposing its will. Uh, but the general idea is that all forms of funding to our universities be temporarily withheld until the following two conditions are met. Uh, so one is that our universities make a firm commitment to free expression. And then the second is that our universities come up with both a short-term and a long-term plan to address the issue of uh, viewpoint diversity. Uh, so the general idea is that they come up with ways so that universities go back to being places where any idea can be discussed and no idea can go unchallenged. Thank you. I just have a few comments to make about Professor Maida's observations with which I largely agree. He sees the, quote, imbalance in left and right professors on campus as undermining free speech, end quote. I see, the, I see what he's saying, but I don't think it's the imbalance that's doing that. I think it's the left that is undermining free speech. I mean, if you had a 100% imbalance that was on the right, would free speech even be an issue? Only those who have indefensible viewpoints fear freedom of speech, and those viewpoints all emanate from the left. That's why I was a little uncomfortable when he suggested that, uh, you know, numerous people thinking the same way is a threat to extremism. You might have extremism, but not if they're thinking right. If everyone agreed at least on the idea that every individual has a right to his or her own life, liberty, and property, well, that might be extreme, but it's extremely right, and it's correct and moral. So you can see the use of the word extreme again suggests that there's some kind of center or middle of the road position to be taken on these issues. And you can't do that with freedom of speech. Either you have free speech or you don't. It's as simple as that. However, I was relieved when Professor Maida cited social justice as his example of extremism, which it is, <laughs> extremely left. More properly stated, just left. Social justice, of course, is another anti-concept. It means not justice. It means that society, 
government, politicians, will undeservedly reward or punish you based on some kind of social concept, not an individualistic one. Race, culture, skin color, religion, economic status, and just about any other grouping possible of individuals will instead become the artificial standard of justice, not anything attributable to the individual being so judged. You've all heard the term white guilt. Well, that's just another anti-concept that is also racist to the core. What the left always means, of course, when they talk about white, when applied in this way, is to Western culture and all of the values associated with it. They associate white people with Western culture, with individual rights, with freedom, with you know life, liberty, property, with all those limitations on things that they would like to do if someone would let them loose to do it because they don't want to have limits that respect the rights of others. Professor Maida laments the polarization of society, quote, unquote, I celebrate it. I don't, I don't lament it. I've discussed both the value and the necessity of political polarization on numerous past broadcasts. You know, it's about time that the reality is being acknowledged that all of politics, including political correctness, is a polarized binary equation, and you cannot escape that. But you know, with the polarization rather than it being a threat, comes a great benefit. And that is this, that the evil or the goodness of one side or the other of the polarity becomes glaringly visible. And with visibility comes the opportunity to defeat the evil and to fight for the good. And in that process, unfortunately, knowing evil and what evil is is also a necessary element to not becoming its victim. Okay? So... That's why even evil is always entitled to a voice. You know, that viewpoint diversity as put by Professor Maida. And of course, with that, always comes the risk that evil will be acted upon. And that's why freedom always requires eternal vigilance. Now, I really like Professor Maida's take on the four principles of social justice. Emotionalism over rationality equity of outcome rather than of opportunity, although again I always see that as more of a, not of opportunity, but of equality before and under the law. Um, diversity as a weapon to divide, and inclusion to the point where one person's offense closes the conversation. And boy, on that last point, you know, Robert and I can speak from our own campus experience at CHRW Radio at Western University. You know, we were told one anonymous complaint about something that we didn't even say was all it took to get us taken off the air after being there for eight years or more. Another indefensible view of the left take is on sexuality and sex. You know, Professor Maida observed that in his university community, quote, biological sex differences are treated as a form of blasphemy, end quote. Well, isn't that the very attitude we saw reflected in that bizarre criticism of sex in the city that we mentioned earlier? It's the same attitude coming out. So let's take our conversation now about political correctness to the next level. I want to thank Mary Lou for directing my attention to this June 11th conversation between interviewer Stefan Molyneux and journalist, screenwriter, and author Michael Walsh. He is the author of The Devil's Pleasure Palace and the Cult of Critical Theory and The Fiery Angel, 
Art, Culture, Sex, Politics, and the Struggle for the Soul of the West. Now, their conversation will serve as our focal point for the rest of the show today because that conversation, both in our upcoming bumper and in a bumper to follow, was both enlightening and a bit frustrating for reasons I'll get into when we return. You're particularly ferocious on political correctness, and why? Why? Because I think it's fascism of the mind. That's what it is. It's to get people like you and me and millions and millions and millions of others like us to think that we're aberrational and alone. So your point, I think, about the Internet is very good. What what it allowed people to do is to connect with other people and realize they're not alone, which is why the ferocious pushback now is so great, because the cultural Marxists who started political correctness, it all comes out of critical theory and the Frankfurt School, uh, they realize their grip is, is failing. So they have to do things like net neutrality. You know, they had to go right back and attack the Internet. They're, they they institute state censorship of the Internet. Uh, they don't want people talking to each other because, it, it, you know, I hate to bring up Star Trek, but I do kind of like Star Trek. And there's a wonderful Star Trek, in the, you know, the only true Star Trek, the original salvation series. The Ur-Trek, uh, uh, we could call it. The Ur-Trek, yes, exactly. Uh, there's a scene, there's a, a, an episode with uh, the good angel, and he seduces all the children on board a ship to kill all their parents and, and, and take over the ship. Uh, and when the Enterprise finds them, the children are in the grips of this angel, who's played by Melvin Belli, which is funny for those of us who are of a certain age. Melvin Belli, the famous San Francisco lawyer, was quite a prominent public personality in his day. Uh, he plays the angel. And Kirk finally gets the children to look at the angel without the rose-colored glasses they are effectively wearing. And as they watch him, his face begins to melt, and he turns into a horrid monster. And Kirk says, now look at him. And the kids all start crying, and they want to turn away. He says, no, look at him until you see what a hard, putrid thing this is. And that's what we simply must do with our opponents who are dedicated to our destruction, is, is expose them for what they are. And political correctness is their way of making that difficult for us to do, because it rules things out of bounds in the conversation. And as soon as you say something that offends somebody, you're immediately ostracized, banned, and, and lose your job, etc. I mean, just look at the mob mentality now on Twitter, where someone can make a tweet and the next minute they're gone. Just gone, 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 gone. Uh, this is something worthy of the old Soviet Union, and frankly, it doesn't surprise me, because if the Soviets had had this, they would have used it. I should just say, to polish my bona fides on this subject, I spent a great deal of time in the Soviet Union. I spent the years between 1985 and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, working and living behind the Iron Curtain, uh, in and out constantly, starting in East Berlin in 85, in East Germany, and then going to Moscow in 86, uh, with Vladimir Horowitz, the great Russian pianist, uh, who, who did a once-in-a-lifetime return to Russia at that point, uh, and then continuing to go back until right up to the coup against Gorbachev. I was also there when Chernobyl blew up. Mm. So I had a very front row seat of a lot of the great events, including the fall of the Berlin Wall, which I was at as well. Uh, I saw this happening. I, I know what the Soviet Union was like. I, I got the smell of it in my nose to this day. If you've spent any time in a socialist country, children out there, I'm talking to you, Bernie bros, it stinks to high heaven. 
The people stink. The air stinks. It's filthy. The water is polluted. It's disgusting. The, the, the entire place has no maintenance. Everything's falling apart. The buildings crumble as you look at them. And this is the satanic hell. This is the devil's pleasure palace that these people want for us in the West. And you simply have to say it. So they've swept that all under the rug. And now we've got a new generation of suckers who think, well, what's wrong with to each according to his, you know, from each according to his ability? Well, what's wrong with it is it always ends with you up against a wall being shot. That's what happens. And if you don't understand that, I can't help you unless you experience it firsthand. Tommy's father would have destroyed you, but he recognized you too late. And uh, you were also too late. The kind ones always are. Not always, Gorgon. Not this time. You can't hide from them. They see you as we see you. They know what you are. Even the children learn. You are my future generals. Together we can raise armies of followers. Go to your post. The first great victories are upon us. You will see. We have millions of friends on Marcus 12. We shall exterminate all who oppose us. Our purity of purpose cannot be contaminated by those who disagree, who will not cooperate, who do not understand. They must be annihilated. Don't be afraid. Look at them. Without you children, he's nothing. Evil remains within him. I command you, I command you, to your post. Carry out your duties, or I will destroy you. You will be swept aside to make way for the strong. Look how ugly he really is. Look at him. And don't be afraid. I don't know how it happened, but it's good to see. It's all right, Marty. It's all right. It's all right, isn't it, Doctor? Yes. It's all right. We can help them now. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. 
Now, Michael Walsh's observation that the Internet is becoming more and more controlled by the left was certainly one that strikes home. You know, the mob mentality on Twitter. And you may recall that last week we ourselves talked about our own experience with Facebook's recent banning of political content from being advertised on Facebook in the United States. You know, the fascism of the mind to which Michael Walsh referred, I like this reference to Star Trek. It suggested that Michael Walsh certainly understands the significance of storytelling in helping shape a culture's values. And that's a theme we'll hear him expand upon again in a few minutes. I should also point out that on a previous episode of Just Right, many moons ago, we had already played a segment from that same Star Trek episode where Kirk, as played by William Shatner, announces that his own beast was gone, you know, the whole idea of being taken over by evil. Thanks, he says, to the light of reality. And that was the kind of philosophy that made the first Star Trek series so significant in terms of its legendary status. It was a very black and white show about what was wrong and right about morality and moral issues. And of course, recognizing reality is the antidote to the sickness, to evil, to the left, to all the problems we see in the world that are politically caused. And you know, we're really afraid to use that word, aren't we? We're reluctant to use the words good and evil in any real, consistent, absolute term. We're reluctant to judge others, even after those others have given us more than enough evidence to make judgment almost unavoidable. People flock to churches to learn about good and evil, and then in their daily lives, the use of such words and terms are considered extreme in most cases, aren't they? Everybody wants to be safe in that imaginary center and never really making a clear choice. And so that's really the challenge we're faced with, isn't it? Discovering the reality of the left is a painful experience, particularly for those who personally identify on the left, often for all the wrong reasons. And, and, and by that I mean two different things. You might identify with the left for a wrong reason because you've just misidentified your own beliefs and you falsely associated them with the left side of, of the polarity. Or you could be wrong about the left because you actually share those beliefs of the left. What's wrong with the idea of from each according to his ability to each according to his need? Asked Michael Walsh. And he answered by saying, well, what's wrong with it is that everyone gets shot in the end. <laughs> well, that's true to a point, but that's really not what's wrong with it. That's just an inevitable consequence. Actually, the real problem with the idea of from each according to his ability to each according to his need which is really a bastardization of the old Marxist statement. He didn't exactly put it that way. But either way, it's an out-and-out -out formula for slavery, isn't it? The person of ability is made slave to the person in need. This is actually a good description of the welfare state, in which need, as always, can mean anything to anybody. And it usually does when people operate on that principle. Need is unlimited whereas ability is a rare quality, one that never surfaces simply when commanded to do so. And that's why command economies never work properly and cannot compete with free economies. Ability arises in free societies because ability is a consequence of self-interest and the freedom to exercise it. 
consider Walsh's observations of the time he spent in the Soviet Union and in other socialist countries. I, I found that amazing. Socialist countries stink. This is satanic hell, he says. Well, it's also a society where self-interest is always being sacrificed to the collective. And that's the reason that everything stinks. And now the conversation does get very interesting. Here again are Stefan Molyneux and Michael Walsh. So what is in the Greeks and the Romans that you think has been scrubbed or is most necessary in the sort of cultural battles that we found ourselves in? Yes, that's a good question. And it's precisely what the books are about. I have posited something that I call, whether originally or unoriginally, the heroic narrative. It's partly based on Campbell's philosophy, the hero with a thousand faces, and the basis for all Western storytelling. But, but more important, it's not just storytelling. It's the basis for all Western uh, self-identification, uh, <clears throat> which is to say, we are not cogs in a machine. We are not ants in an ant farm. We are not Chinese under the Han Dynasty. We are individuals. Uh, this is partly a Christian thing. It's certainly a Judeo-Christian thing. We are individuals with our own destinies, an individual destiny. We're not a collective. We may form ourselves into groups, but we ourselves are not nothing. And that therefore, all of our stories, starting with even before the Greeks, you can go back to Celtic history, you can go back to Finn McCool, you can go back to Cattle Raid and Cooley uh, in, in our own Irish culture. Uh, these things are about individuals with a destiny to fulfill. And even the humblest among us, especially those of us who are Christians, understand that there is a destiny that we uniquely and alone must and, and, and can fulfill if we set our minds to it. So I think the notion of individualism, which then comes and is reflected in the religions that grow out of the heroic narrative, uh, is what separates the West from the East. And that's why the, the cultural Marxist and economic Marxist collectives are so debilitating and damaging because they treat people as a group rather than as individuals. And we must fight for the individual. The left, by the way, which has masqueraded as the, the party of the individual and concern for individual rights, has cast off its mask. It's now a wholly collectivist enterprise, and it attacks us constantly on the grounds of collectivism and, and, and through the means of collectivism. And yet it's individuals like you and me and a handful of other people in, in cyberspace on Twitter and, and writing and on blogs and I still work for some of the mainstream media outlets as well. We have to defend individualism. Well, and I think this is, however we want to characterize these two poles, well, I shouldn't speak for you, but however I would characterize them as Darwin versus Jesus or Darwin versus Socrates or, because the question is, is the devil comes along to you and says, I can give you the entire world. If you live in a Darwinian mammalian universe, yeah, I mean, that, that is yeah. more resources for your offspring. That's more resources for your progeny. That is getting to the top of the food chain. So in, why not? Why not take the world if the world is all there is? Now, Jesus would say heaven. Socrates would say um, virtue. Um, Aristotle would say eudaimonia or the good life. There has to be something that pushes back against the mere material will to power. Because 
in a Darwinian universe alone, you look at someone like Che Guevara, or you look at someone like Lenin, or you look at someone like Stalin, who started out his career as a bank robber and probably would have ended up in jail, but instead ended up ruling over 200 million people uh, it, just in, in the Soviet Union alone. How do you look at those people and say, well, you did wrong, you see, you, you took power, and that's bad. Or I look at people like um, George Bush or, or Barack Obama, in a free society, I don't know, they'd be kind of like two-bit hustlers, maybe used car salesmen, maybe run a bit of a Ponzi scheme or something, but they wouldn't have gathered the massive amount of resources, or the Clintons, of course, the, you know, the first satanic couple in a way, who gather hundreds of millions of dollars of resources through, you know, selling off scraps of freedom and, and resources and so on. How do you say no to people who've gathered that many resources? Now, of course, Christianity has the answer. What, what is the point of gaining the whole world if you lose your soul? And so there's a way to push back against the Darwinian aggregation of resources that characterize evolution. You get the most resources, you get the most offspring, you win. And how do we push back against that in the absence of a philosophy that people find meaningful or a religious instruction that they find compelling. That to me has been one of the big, what the 20th century was kind of all about. Yes, well, we can't push back absent those. So that's the answer to that question. Uh, uh, does this mean we need a reinstitution re re of Christianity? Uh, partly, uh, uh, certainly of the moral code of Christianity and, and Judeo-Christianity. Yes, we do, because we have to be able to answer Gordon Gecko, you know, the, the, the evil villain of Wall Street. We have to be able to answer Darwin, That's uh, as Barack Obama said, at some point you've made enough money. I mean, in a way, we have to be able to answer that with goodness and with the innate sense of justice and right and wrong. And again, these are concepts the left corrupts constantly by saying, how would you, how can you let this one person suffer? Uh, well, Ireland's just gone through this, as, as you know, and in, in a country we both uh, share roots in. Uh, they just voted to remove the Eighth Amendment from the Constitution, which guaranteed the protection of the life of the unborn. So now it will be up to the Irish Parliament, which is almost wholly a left-wing organization, to define how many weeks it will be permissible for a woman to abort her child. And they're talking about 12, but as I've said to my Irish friends, and I'm on my way to Dublin to say this again, uh, so Roe versus Wade started out the same way. If you go back and look at the decision, it was a very limited right to abortion. It's now become a complete, total right to kill your child at any point in its gestation for any reason. And that's the way it will go. Satan cannot be satisfied with partial measures. He has to take the whole, the whole body because uh, he can't have the soul. So that's what, but we have to have a moral argument against that. And the moral argument is, yes, it's wrong. It's just wrong that there is, if you believe in an afterlife, if in an afterlife, then it's not worth gaining the whole world if you lose your soul. Certainly not for whales, as, uh, <laughs> as they say in A Man for All Seasons. Uh, but we've taught our kids that only fools think this way. And that therefore the world is a corrupt dog-eat-dog place where if you don't shiv your buddy, then you've somehow let the team down. And the Clintons were the worst example of this. And there's a reason why, and I wrote this many times, most famously in at the request of John F. Kennedy Jr. when he was alive and he was editing George Magazine. And he knew that I was writing a book about the great Irish gangster Owen Vincent Madden, Oney Madden of New York City. Uh, and he said, uh, well, Madden died in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I spent a lot of time in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and he asked me to write a book about Clinton's connection to Oney Madden 
in Hot Springs. Oni Madden retired from gangland in 1935, the day after Dutch Schultz was murdered uh, at the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey. And he went to Hot Springs, which he took over for the next 30 years and ran, ran as a gangland fiefdom. And one of his protégés was William Jefferson Blythe III, Clinton. So Clinton sat in that club, the Southern Club and Grill, and I have Clinton's friends from Hot Springs telling me all about it. I talked with the lawyer, I talked with everybody in Hot Springs, uh, and, and absorbed, not crime, but the lessons that the tough guys win, the guys that are willing to cut corners win, the guys who can intimidate and who have muscle win. And that's how a boy from nowhere became president of the United States. He applied gangland's lessons to American politics. And since then, the Democrats have never stopped doing that. And so as writing as David Kahane in National Review, as I did for many years, I coined the expression, the Democrats are a criminal organization masquerading as a political party, which has now become a kind of meme. And I stand by that statement. I believe that's exactly what they are, and there's no way to prove to me that they're not. But we can't become them. We can't become them. No, we can't become like them, because then what would have been the point of the conflict in the first place? <laughs> you know, I really like the whole concept of the hero narrative and the necessity of having such stories to unite a culture. But I really found the latter part of their conversation rather bizarre wish-making more than a rebuttal to political correctness or to critical theory. You know, what we just heard there was conservative intrinsicism, that innate sense of justice and right and wrong, tying their sense of morality to Judeo-Christian values, which they never really clearly define, but assume to be understood by others who share those values. And I don't think that's the way the world works, or even how those values are founded. We have to defend individualism, says Walsh, but he'll never win that war with the kind of defense that we just heard offered. It's almost an anti-argument to his case. What, pushing back against accumulating wealth? Is that the answer that Christianity has? What kind of standard of morality is that? Limiting personal wealth? It was, I was surprised how they kept referring to, to, hinting at that, you know? What we have to do is place limits not on personal wealth, but on personal and public evil. And I can think of no more devilish temptation than to tell people that there's an afterlife awaiting them upon their physical death. There's nothing about believing in an afterlife that would compel me to be moral. But of course, <laughs> the reality is just the opposite. And what's amazing is that Walsh himself testified to that reality. And he was talking about the conditions in the socialist countries that he visited. You know, he said he spent time in the Soviet Union and how they stink. They have the same, he has that smell in his nose. The people stink, the air stinks, the water's polluted, all of that. This is satanic hell. Yes. <laughs> he said it before. It's satanic hell. Hell on earth. And that's the only place that hell exists. And that is why morality matters. And if you're going by the current moral code of Christianity, that is altruism. And that is a value of the left. And I'm talking about altruism, not charity, neither of which are virtues, by the way. You often hear it said, we are our brother's keeper, and that's almost been identified with Christianity. But if you interpret it as 
respecting your brother and, you know, keeping your distance, acknowledging him as an individual and his personhood, that's one thing. But if you're his keeper, if you have to keep him in supply of his needs, that's a whole other thing. And how would that be any different from the collectivism of the left, you know, from, from each according to his ability to each according to his need? <laughs> it's the same thing. We are our brother's keeper. It's all in the interpretation, isn't it? Fact is, life is the only standard of morality, and no other standard is even possible. And life, of course, is an individual attribute. You have a life, and it's independent of all the other individuals in whatever collective you want to define. Individual rights defines the framework of the collective and the proper moral grounds on which individuals must interact with one another, and that's consent. But I, I, you know, I was quite surprised by how Molyneux introduced his concept of the two poles. I thought he was going to say left and right. You know, that, that theme that keeps coming up regardless of how people attempt to describe the poles. But he described them in terms of Darwin versus Jesus or Darwin versus Socrates. And, you know, if the devil comes along to you and says, uh, I can give you the entire world and you live in the Darwinian mammalian universe, why not take the world if the world is all there is? More resources for you. There has to be something that pushes back against the mere material will to power. Uh, I was quite surprised to hear that, because to me that whole premise is completely irrational. First, what would you do with the entire world? The very idea is almost like a cartoon. How could that world possibly be given to me by anyone? What is meant by that? You know, of course, this is all allegorical, isn't it? You're not literally talking about the world. You're talking about your freedom. And morality is either purposely or subconsciously being contrasted in terms of consumerism versus religion. And just like the feminists who objected to the consumerism in Sex and the City, Molyneux and Walsh in their conversation have also been objecting to the consumer to consumerism in their own way. You know, at some point you made enough money. Well, just what the hell is that supposed to mean? That a person can become too rich? Darwinian aggregation of resources? <laughs> oh. Any way you look at it, wealth is preferable to poverty. Can we agree on that? But what's assumed here is a fixed pie theory, and that there's only so much wealth to go around and that there should be limits placed on personal wealth. This is so totally not right in any sense of the word. If a person makes his money honestly, there is no moral limit or legal limit or financial limit to the amount he should earn. It's evidence of the fact that he's doing good for society, which is the reason for the wealth. This cannot and must not be confused with those who get their wealth through criminal activity, theft, legal theft, fraud, or other non-consensual means of obtaining wealth. The moral standard in this issue, as in all social issues and all issues dealing with society, is consent. Not the fear of punishment or reward and some afterlife or placing limits on people's wealth. If someone's aggregating his resources using force or fraud, then he, he's made enough money with the first penny he aggregated. <laughs> the limit would have to be zero. So when you're being accused of being too white or too right, you can always bet that it's the left driving that mentally deranged agenda. 
It's the left's way of avoiding the debate about why the left is evil and will always lead to deadly consequences, both in the death of the human spirit and the body itself. So for those of you who may actually never have heard of Monty Python and are wondering why they've been deemed too white for British TV, we'll leave you with our closer today as we remind you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Everything will be alright. And welcome to another edition of Pretty This, the show that gives you a chance to have a go at wops, scrouts, snigs, eye ties, jippos, bubbles, froggies, chinks, yids, jocks, polacks, pennies, and dagos. Tonight's show comes live from the tiny village of Rabid in Buckinghamshire. And our first question tonight is from Mrs. Elizabeth Scrint, who says she is going on a Mediterranean cruise next week and can't find anything wrong with the Syrians. Well, Mrs. Scrint, apart from being totally unprincipled left-wing troublemakers, the Syrians are also born skyvers, they're dirty, smelly and untrustworthy, and of course they're friends of the awful Jippos! (laughs) 